right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Drovetta. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We're going to be joined by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star coming up at 340 and then we're going to talk with Craig Herzer in the 4 o'clock hour, some high school hoops, as we've got the City Showdown coming up for you on Friday here on KLWN. Tennessee beat Kentucky last night, which the reason I bring this up at the top of the show, I mean, for one, it's it's good for KU and the competition for the number one, for a number one seed, and we're going to see Saturday they are releasing the NCAA Tournament Committee does their, like, top four seed lines, top 16 overall at this point of the season. So that'll be a good monitor of where KU is. But I also bring it up, and, and yeah, Bracket Matrix, which is like a combination of all the brackets, has Kansas as the last one seed right now, Kentucky now on the two line because of the game. I, I also think it's also a good example of how, like I think in football, but this even in football, we see the opposite of this happen as well. It's a lot easier to, you know, you beat a team by 30 points. Like if Alabama beats you by 30 points, there's a good chance they're going to beat you by 30 again the next game. In basketball, that's that's not the case, especially when you get two good teams. Kentucky had beaten Tennessee earlier this season by 28 points. They lost to Tennessee last night by 13. That's weird. I think that's a good lesson for a couple things. I mean, one, don't just expect, expect because KU thwomped Baylor for them to just automatically win when they're in Waco. Like, Baylor could easily do the same thing to KU. But also, I think it's a good lesson of if KU happens to be in the same bracket as Kentucky, like if one of them's the one seed and the other one's the two seed, doesn't just automatically mean that Kentucky is going to boat race KU again. Yeah, don't... Like, we saw the best version of Kentucky. Yeah, don't flip out. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I remember... In 03, um, I'll say that 03 team was probably better because it had two lottery picks on it in, in Kirk Heinrich and Nick Collison. Um, but the, in, the end of basically the exact same weekend that Kentucky played uh, Kansas this year, Arizona came to Allen Fieldhouse. KU was up by a ton at half, and Arizona just blew past. KU had a, like a 15-point lead and wound up losing by about 18. So in Arizona just destroyed Kansas in the second half. They play one another again out in Anaheim, and Kansas wins, granted, by three. It wasn't like Tennessee one going away. Another one I can think of is um, we were just looking at old Baylor games before the show, and in 2016, I think, two days before that epic three-overtime game with Oklahoma, two days before that, Kansas hosted Baylor in Allen Fieldhouse and crushed them by about 30, and 102-74 was the final Kansas went down to Waco. They got a win, but they had to sweat for it. I think they only won that game in by six. I think that was sixty-six to sixty. We saw. So yeah, they, there's no, um, there's no real. Look, sometimes it matters. Sometimes it means something. Sometimes if you 
beat a team. I mean, we just saw it against Oklahoma State Monday. Sometimes you're just more athletic or a bad matchup for a team, and you're going to win, you know, 19, time, 19 times out of 20. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case, and, and especially in college basketball, you know, now I'll, I'll say I'll say this. I think it would take Kentucky playing a worse game. Like, I'm not sure Kansas is beating Kentucky at their A game. But mm-hmm. in college basketball, teams don't play their A game night in and night out. No. And, like, exactly. That's what happened to Tennessee. When they played Kentucky the first time, they were their A-plus game. Put up 107 points, and they lost by 28. But this go-around when they played, you know, maybe Kentucky had their B game. And, and maybe Tennessee yourself, had their A game. What did you learn from that beatdown? What what did you learn? What what are you doing differently? Who who are you better? You know, which players are, are you are better now than they were um, against that? I think the bigger lesson needs to be taken away, and I'm not trying to be too pessimistic here because I think Kansas will probably be favored in Waco, depending on what happens between now and then. Um, Kansas still has some games to play, but I think if they lined up right now in Waco, Kansas would be favored. Um, but yeah, I, I just think don't take too much away from it if Kansas doesn't pull it off in Waco, and certainly don't go down there going, "Hey man, check that out! They just beat them by you know." Because I mean, Kansas, Kansas didn't wreck Baylor last year, but they they gave Baylor a, a pretty solid thumping in Allen. Field yeah, they last did. Year. I also think it's it's a good like, you know, this is the one thing that's impossible to measure with metric systems and and this is where the the eye test does come in of the idea of why are things different and and i mean yes there are like measurements if you could say well between this date and this date um but that's something you have to look for like a team could be ranked eighth in ken palm for instance going into the tournament but somebody came back from an injury and when he's back with an injury they're really the third best team something like that and for kansas since that kentucky game i think that game kind of marked the what's going to happen with this season this is either going to turn into a okay this was a clear takeaway that this team just wasn't very good or this is an opportunity to just move on from this and be a different team I think to this point yes they did lose the game against Texas but they've been a much better team and I think there's some tangible differences with what they are Joe Yesifu is now part of the rotation more Zach Clements is back healthy and I guess part of the rotation more we kind of think Jalen Wilson Jalen Wilson's been fantastic um Ochak Baji had COVID that day so who knows what you can really take away from that let me add this I I think um last year Kansas now look they they had COVID toward the end David McCormick had to come back from COVID now I I think USC was was a pretty bad matchup for Kansas and I think you know just bait you know just athletically they just destroyed Kansas mm-hmm. in that game. Everybody remembers it. Um, but I do think KU was playing like one of the 12 or 14 best teams in the country from mid, from early February on. They basically they fell out of the rankings last year. I think this year's team is better than last year's Kansas team, but that's just an example. That's a team that went from out of the rankings to a three seed basically over the course of February. Yeah. Now, one thing that we're still waiting on to see what's going to be different from that February game or from that Kentucky game, I should say, to because it was actually January, to the end of the season or to right now, is what's the deal with Remy Martin? The Kentucky game was a game that he played. That's the last time we've seen him. 
and he was clearly hobbled. You, you saw certain instances of it that were pointed out via video clips and it was mentioned by Bill Self that he just wasn't fully healthy. And he was like trying to chase around Kellen Grady on a double screen and just couldn't work around because he couldn't plant off the knee fast enough or take the contact and everything. Bill Self last night on Hawk Talk made mention of Remy Martin. So Brian Haney is asking Bill Self a question about the status of Remy Martin, if he could return soon. And it didn't really sound too optimistic. Here is what Bill Self had to say. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would hope so. But he does some individual work and things like this. But but he's, he's still experiencing pain. So uh, I'd like to see that uh, because it's getting so late. You know, you're, you're, you're probably going to put yourself in a position that's going to be hard for him to be a hundred percent good if he doesn't have a chance to practice and, and, and play with the guys. But, uh, but you know, right now it's, he, he's not ready and he's not. So, uh, I, I, I don't know if there's a time frame on it at all, Brian, it's just whenever he feels it. I mean, that's, that's kind of bleak that, you know, it's, it's obviously very different injuries, but I just, every time I, uh, there's a situation like this where it's like, well, he's, he's kind of day to day. He's kind of week to week. We don't really know. It just reminds me so much of the, Cross sport comparison here, the Eric Berry situation with the Chiefs, where it was yeah. like every week it was like he's day to day, he's week to week, does, he, he never played. Does when he feels it mean anything to you? And, my, and, and there was another point where Bill Self made it clear, and he's made it clear. It last he made it clear last night at a different point during the show. He's made it clear in um, in post games that Remy Martin is dealing with a lot of pain, mm-hmm. and and so I, I want to make it clear. I I don't want to assume. That Bill Self, I mean, because Bill Self's not shy when he thinks his players are being um, maybe a little weak. I don't know that that's what's happening here, and I want to be very clear on that. But, and, and I also, much to the opposite of that, he's been very clear that Remy is dealing with a ton of pain right now. So I, I, I want to be clear. I don't necessarily think that Self is suggesting anything as far as Remy and whether or not he want, he's willing to play through pain because it may be a catastrophic amount of pain. We don't know how bad it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um but I that the that caught me, man. The the when he feels it. That that caught me. Yeah. But I also think it's an injury where it's not as simple as hey, you have a fractured thumb. You have to miss four to six weeks and be in a cast. Yeah. This is more of an injury where it's just, are you feeling good or not? So, and, and that's a legitimate question. I mean, if you're too, if you're in too much pain, you can't do anything, right? And so that doesn't make him weak or anything like that. It just, you truly, your your legs matter a lot in the game of basketball. And if you can't, if the pain is so much that it's distracting to you, you're not going to be an effective player. Yeah, and I think what KU has learned is that they're better off with a 100% Joe Yesifu than they are a 60, 70, 80% Remy Martin. Especially if if the trade-off, and, and again, I agree with what you said, that feels somewhat bleak, but if the trade-off remains down the road, you can get a 90% Remy Martin back, and that's a big if. That seems like, to me, a big if right now. I'll still take that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do sense a little bit of, of maybe frustration or agitation in the way that was answered, though, from Bill Self. And I, I don't know if that would be in regards to having to answer that question a ton, because every time there's a media availability, we're asking him. And, you know, I think it's a fair question because people want to know. It's just kind of a weird situation. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he... But he, I'm sure it gets tired I'm sure he's answering sick of, it, right? sick of the question. So it could be that. It could be. 
maybe there is more there that that we don't know. But um, I and it could also be something that he he feels he's frustrated not with Remy or he's not frustrated with the question. He's frustrated that he he just wishes things were better. Yeah, like absolutely. He, he he wishes that he didn't have to that this wasn't an issue. Well, I go back to a conversation we had a week or two ago about. Is there a deadline there? Like, is there a point in time when it's too late? And I think he kind of addressed that a little bit in the question there. He said, I mean, he basically said yes, but he didn't give exactly right, when. Right. Like, is if I were to say Remy can't come back till the Big 12 tournament, like, is that at that point, do you just say, okay, like, you're going to be back, but barring somebody being in foul trouble or us just kind of throwing you a, a weird chance here or there? Like, we're not going to put you in the rotation because at that point, like, it's been over a month since you've been gone and we've settled into our rotation and we feel like we're a good team now. We're not going to risk kind of, uh, I guess, I don't know, putting a turd in the punch bowl. Like, we feel like everything <laughs> is, is mixed properly. I don't you know. Would, you would need, I'll say this, I, I think if that's, the, if that's the circumstance, you would need at least one or two hard practices, mm-hmm. and that would probably come. And that's part of the like issue too. The, he can't practice with yeah, the team right now. And, and that if if you if you have to make that decision, that hard practice might come the Monday of the Big Twelve tournament. If you're you know because Kansas will be playing Thursday, um, barring something really weird happening down the stretch, Kansas' first Big Twelve tournament game will be that Thursday. So you could potentially have a hard practice maybe maybe Tuesday because if they play Saturday, you wouldn't want a hard practice Monday. And then your next chance for a hard practice would be the week of the NCAA tournament. So I, I think you would need to, if you're not going to see him in game action, you would need to at least see Remy in a very in a hard practice with the team to see how they gel and how he looks going in a full-speed practice setting. It's just hard not to see how long it took Jalen Wilson to get back and think that could be the case. And if you have a guy who is, you know, not playing 100%, not because of his health, but because he hasn't remeshed with everyone or gotten the chemistry back with everyone, is that hurting your team? And at that point of the season, you you wonder if you don't want to risk that. Maybe that won't end up being the, the case, but if, it just... If, if you get a chance, if you're able to do what you're supposed to do against your 16 or your 15 seed and blow them out, and and that's not a given, but if you're able to do that, he could get some time there too. But is that real time? That's not well, playing no, with the guys he's going to play. I with, agree. You know? I agree completely. But at least that's a, that's an opportunity to see what he looks like in a basketball game. I, I, it's not the ideal situation. This whole thing just sounds bleak to me. I really do wonder if we have seen the last of Remy Martin playing at Kansas now. Again, it sounds totally like it's up to how it's just feeling, and it's it's not a process that we can put a date on and say that, well, yeah, it'll be feeling much better next week. We, we don't know. Maybe play Saturday. I don't know. But hypothetically, if Remy Martin never returns this season, how would that affect the way you look at this team, and how would that affect the way you look at this team's potential? I still think at this very moment they can make a Final Four. I wouldn't, you know, if I fell into a coma and woke up the first weekend of April and Kansas was playing, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I'd wonder what caused the coma. But I I wouldn't be shocked if, if this team, as it's assembled, without Remy Martin, makes a Final Four. Um, I still think their ceiling is best with Remy Martin. I think they need, I think we've established how good they look in a two with a with at least for uh, at one point or another during the game, significant minutes of a two lead guard lineup. Um, and then we, 
and if you can make one of those two lead guards, that being Remy Martin, an effective score, that adds to it even more. So I think for those reasons, their highest ceiling is is with Remy Martin as part of a two lead guard lineup. Um, but I'm not. I don't think it's it's a, this de- devastating loss. I don't think Joe Yesifu can score at the rate that Remy Martin can score when he's really on. Um, but I think Yesifu is serv- serviceable enough, and you've got three really damn good wings. And yes, ideally you want great. You know, you want really effective scoring from your guards that's a very important thing in March but if you can if you can you know have a two guard lineup that really makes the offense go and your scores are your wings that's 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 doable mm-hmm. and I think this team can make a final four without Remy Martin but I think they're better with him yeah I, best I agree with everything you said um, I'll take I'll say this back to real quick I'll take a 100% or 90% or whatever you, Joe Yesifu over a 60% Remy Martin. Yeah, I think Remy gives KU their highest ceiling, and you definitely do want him back. And everything you said about KU looking really good with these two-guard lineups, that's an opportunity for Remy Martin to come in, and that they've shown those, lineup work, those lineups work, and that he can be an impactful player for you. I, at the same point in time, the way they've played lately, if they don't get him back... It's no longer the the deed that it was maybe a month ago. When a month ago, it felt like if you don't get Remy Martin playing to 100%, if you don't get Remy Martin playing at his fullest and, and figured out with this team, they ain't going nowhere in March. It feels a little different now because Joe Yesfu has emerged and because you do feel like some other guys have stepped up and you blew out Baylor since then, that you feel like you still can accomplish everything that you want to do without him it would just be maybe a little bit easier with him. It would maybe be a little more um, of a projected thing that could happen if you do get him back and do get him playing at a healthy rate and do get him playing well with your team because what we saw at the beginning of the year, like I, I go all the way back to the first game of the season against Michigan State, and he took over in the second half. You don't have another lead guard that can do that, and having that guy in March would go a long ways, but KU is still a good enough team that they can go far even without him, even though it would be good to have him back. With Adam Dravat, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell joins the show in about 15, 20 minutes from right now. You're listening to RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. About 20 till 4, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta. Joined now on a Wednesday by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, kansascity.com. And Jesse just wrote about this first question I'm going to ask him at kansascity.com without giving away everything there because you should go read it. Um, KU should 100% want teams to continue defending Ochag Baji this exact way, right? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's worked out for KU, for sure. Uh, lately, the thing about it is, and Bill Self mentioned this after the game, um, last game against Oklahoma State, when, when teams do that, then it opens up other people out there, and it kind of makes it four-on-four, coincidence that the last three times that teams have really face guard Otay Baji tried to take him away that 
the guys that have had success are guys like Christian Brown and Jalen Wilson, who are like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's like Cincinnati having pretty good number two and number three receivers besides Jamar Chase. You know, it's like, oh, you want to double-team Jamar Chase? Okay, well, <laughs> uh, good luck because some of these other guys are pretty good too. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't – teams will adjust. Uh, defenses always do over time, but Texas basically decided to take Ochai away and won the game, so maybe that's made other teams more apt to try that sort of thing. But I don't think it's worked against Kay's offense, and I think as more teams do it, Kay's going to become more comfortable – with going against that sort of scheme. And not only that, Bill Self talked about it. Ochai's played really well lately. He's cut off the ball. He's run hard in transition. He's actually opened things up for his teammates. So it's been really good for KU to uh, have this sort of thing happen because Ochai's handled it the right way, and then other guys have emerged when they've had to to become more of scoring threats to uh, make sure that KU can still get that efficient offense even without their best scorer getting as many shots. It's been a while since we've had this conversation on the show. It was a pretty popular one in, in maybe December or January about who the second best player on the team was. We had, at the beginning of the year, the conversations about who it would be. I, I don't even know if we knew who the first was uh, before the, the first game happened. And then it was, you know, is it Christian Brown in December when Jalen, before we had seen him play, we wondered if it was going to be him. Uh, wondered if, uh, you know, could it be David McCormick at certain points in, in terms of value and what he means to the team. Now Jalen's coming on again. So uh, with Ochai being the clear number one choice, who would be your answer to who KU's second best player is? Uh, I would definitely say uh, Christian Brown. And I think he's got a shot at this moment, probably would be all Big 12 first team with Ochai Abaji right now. Uh, just based off of season's work and, you know, you can look at only conference numbers if you want, but doing that is sort of selling Christian short and what he's provided for this team. Not only that, I mean, the, the fact that he's emerged this much, I remember having conversations before the year, I'm not sure it was with your show, um, Derek, but, you know, we were talking about whether Christian Brown was going to start or not for Kansas. You know, that was at least being mm -hmm. brought up by people. And for him to emerge to this point where now you go to mock draft boards for next season, like 2022 mock draft boards, and some of them have him in the first round. Um, so I, I know Christian hasn't had as amazing games lately as he did earlier in the season, but there's no question to me he's KU's second-best player uh, just because of what he's produced, what he's been able to do scoring inside. Three-point shot hasn't been consistent yet, but he's added you know, blocked shots to his arsenal, become better defensively. I still think there's another level he can get to there, but – just what he's provided with Kate for Kansas, more than just being a spot-up shooter and becoming a more complete player, uh, being sort of the, the Robin to uh, KU's Batman when it comes to Ochai Abaji. I, I think, uh, without a doubt, he's, he's KU's second-best player, and uh, I'm not sure I'd say it's particularly close with anybody else. I know other guys have emerged lately, and other guys can be more valuable to Kansas because their backups aren't as good, but I, I think I think it's right now it's the Ochai and Christian show. Those are the two best players, and that's who's going to lead KU uh, the rest of this season if they go on and complete this big ball title. I, I am a prisoner of the moment, and I am very interested by the Jalen Wilson discussion as far as his conference numbers. And, and we did see it last year with, you know, Dave had the good conference numbers, but overall body of work because the non-con wasn't great. So even though I thought he was better than Derek Culver and better in conference play than Derek Culver, Culver ended up being first-team All-Big 12 in, instead of David McCormick. And I guess that's the argument there with Jalen versus Christian as well because Christian – uh, struggled a little bit in the first month in, in January in conference play. The shooting numbers were down, but those are picking back up. Jalen's been fantastic in conference play. Um, let's switch this uh, up a little bit, though. If if I asked you, you mentioned the term value. If I said, 
who's the second most valuable player. I'm assuming Ochai still won there, but if you have someone else there you want to go with as well. But who would be the second most valuable on this team? Well, um, and I've talked about this a little bit. It kind of depends on your definition of that. Um, and you know, sort of replacement value, if you would, and who's on the rest of the team, because I've, I've argued Dave is, is immensely valuable to Kansas because I, there's just not a natural player behind him that I think does the things that he does. And listen, we all know, I mean, Dave a lot of times is not a fan favorite and he does. And, does some obvious things, uh, not as good as some other Kansas bigs that leave people frustrated and included in that frustrated list is it's Coach Bill Self sometimes. I mean, that happens. But I, I just look at him, and it looks different when he's in the game when he's setting screens because he moves people. It looks different when he's in the game when KU's getting offensive rebounds. And quietly, this is one of KU's best offensive rebounding teams in Bill Self's 19 season. So the big reason for that is Dave is one of the top two offensive rebounders in the nation uh, next to Oscar Shibway. So uh, I just think, you know, the four out, one in, uh, the, that also works really well when they have a threatened day because it's really hard to safeguard Ochai when you can dump it inside and get, a two, po- get two points from Dave and when he can make a post move, when he can go over guys and when he can make teams pay for leaving a single team on him. It, it just adds a different dimension to KU. And I, I think it's very promising. One of those promising things that's happened lately is Zach Clements, you know, coming back, showing confidence, uh, some of K's best possessions against Oklahoma State came when Zach Clements was in the game. So all those are positive things. But listen, we know Zach. I mean, um, the guy is going to be a stud. He's just not strong yet. You know, he goes after rebounds. He, he tries. He hustles. But he's just not the body that Dave is. And we all know K's going to come down the stretch in this season, and they're going to face teams out there that have dominant big men in the middle. And you need another big man to match up against that. So, State isn't the answer for every matchup. We obviously saw that uh, when other teams like Oklahoma and Texas tried to play the pick and pop fives and were successful late in the games. But for most matchups, it's going to be Dave McCormick. So I could easily argue that if he, if you could just say going into a game, hey, you can pick one Kansas player to play well to give KU the best chance to win, I think most nights my answer would be Dave McCormick because I think when he plays well, it's, it's pretty, it's correlated pretty well. When he plays well, KU plays well too. KU's had a lot of success with the two lead guard lineups here, especially of late with with Joe Yesvu, Dwan Harris playing together. And Joe hasn't put up eye popping numbers, but you know some of the numbers you've shared when both are in the lineup have, have been pretty impressive. Uh, do you think that has more to do with specifically Joe Yesvu, or do you think that has more to do with just the idea of what kind of a two lead guard lineup provides for this team? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. And I think when there's another small guard out there, it probably unlocks a little bit more in Dewan Harris, too. Because if you think about what Dewan does so well, he's got great hands, he can be pesky on the ball. But the problem is, and you just mentioned a guy like Jalen Wilson, um, who's done fabulous. I mean, I just mentioned some of the stats, or Cam mentioned some of the stats with him. He's the conference's best shooter in Big 12 league play. He's made 66% of his twos in league play. Uh, you know, 35% of his threes after starting two for 23 this season. He's made his free throws, all these sorts of things. But I, I, I kind of see a switch that, that has changed in Kansas when they get a guy like Yesko on the floor because I think what really ails KU defensively at times is that Jayhawks become very reactionary. And, and what I mean by that is they do so much switching on the back end and they do – um, you know, the ball screen defense where one guy hits the roller when he comes up, another guy helps, another guy helps that guy. 
But what, what can happen is you're just – everything you do is reacting to the offense. Everything you do is a step behind. Everything you do comes from a very passive mindset. And I think when Joseph Yesu comes in the game, when he and Dewan Harrison get out there and, and deny passes and deflect balls and both really get after the two other point guard types on the other team, I think it amps up KU's energy. I, I think they become a more aggressive team with activity rather than a passive team that's always kind of playing a step behind. And so I think that's kind of what it maybe does more for Kansas. Not to mention, um, you know, Joe hasn't put together just amazing rebounding numbers, but I do think it helps to get him in the game because he can jump. And one of, uh, to me, when I watch, one of Joe, um, Dewan Harris's big deficiencies is not being able to get rebounds and not boxing out on that end. So it seems like you add another guy there that at least can give you some athletic ability. But, you know, we know Kansas is so good at transition. Putting two point guard, combo guard, whatever you're going to call it, types on the floor is going to help them out in that sense. So I think it helps their offense in that way. But I think more than anything defensively, it just it flips a little bit of a switch so that KU is just not always in scramble mode. And when it's DeWan Harris and the other four, I think a lot of times they're playing in scramble mode and the offense is able to dictate what they want to do. So I mentioned this in the article, but KU, uh, before last game, they were the worst in defensive steal rate in Big 12 play of any of Bill Self's 19 seasons. And the numbers would tell us, the studies would tell us, that turnovers on defense is just the second most important thing you can do is, is force some turnovers. And all these Big 12 defenses – seem like that's the invoke thing to do is that they heat you up and they turn you over. So Kansas can find a happy medium there. They can force team into tough shots, but you've got to get a few turnovers too. I think that's what Joseph Yesu helps with. It, it just helps them to be a little more aggressive defensively than they are when Juwan Harris is the only tiny guard on the floor. Who knows what the status of Remy Martin is going to be moving forward. It, we, we played the audio from Hawk Talk earlier in the show. It didn't sound uh, overwhelmingly optimistic from Bill Self, but just in terms of that kind of two-lead guard roster construction, and like you said, part of it is Joe, part of it could be the lineup. In regards to how the lineup part of it helps, that has to bode well for Remy Martin if he does return, though, right? You would think so. And, um, you know, that that's sort of where the Joseph Yesterday thing is kind of petering on the edge right now because hey, you ask me, like, how many minutes is Joseph Yesterday going to play at the very end of the season? And... I don't know the answer. You know what I mean? Because if Remy's back and healthy, that's going to cut into Joe's time for sure. It's, it's, you can't play three tiny guards on the floor at the same time. It's really, really difficult to do that. I mean, you can, but you don't want to do it for, for very long. Teams will start posting you up and doing some creative things to take advantage of that. But, yeah, the numbers, the same numbers I mentioned to you that, that kind of showed that KU's two small guard lineup with Yesifu and Harris in the game was pretty good also showed that KU's two small guard lineup with Remy Martin and other guys in the game were, were pretty good as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a tricky game right now. I know we talked about this a week or two ago with Remy, and um, Bill Self, I'm sure, would love to just be more confident in the direction he could go. But at the same time, if, if Remy's not healthy, then it doesn't do any good to put him out there at less than full strength, and you still have a few weeks left. So time's running out. You know, you'd like to get him in some practices. You'd like to get him in some games, get some um, rapport built up with teammates, all that sort of stuff. But if it's not ready, it's not ready. And so I think it's looking less likely by the day that Remy's going to have a major impact at the end of this season. But uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, we know that people can become heroes at the end of the year. That's happened all the time at Kansas. You know, at the end of a season, a guy that you didn't think was going to play will step up in a tournament game and all of a sudden they're lot as a hero. So it's not too late for Remy to do that. But I'm sure that KU's coaching staff would love to have more clarity on the situation. It just doesn't seem like they have that at this point. 
KU five-man carousel now has given a significant amount of ride time to Zach Clements. Um, what do you think the sustainability of that is, and, and how does that potentially alter things for KU if Clements is further part of the rotation? Well, I, I think it gives KU another option. I think that's what's good is that, you know, they have – I mean, you look at the last three games, you have different times when you need all three of those guys. So you kind of are a little bit matchup-proof if you want to be. Dave is the main guy, starter. Um, when he true biggest playing, you want him in there as much as possible. Zach can be a pick-and-pop guy, can, you know, recover on ball screens, get back out to that really quickly. And then you saw K.J. Adams. When you need to switch five on a crucial possession to win the game against uh, Oklahoma, he was in there, switched the screen, defended it well, and, and was, you know, a part of a victory for Kansas. So I, I think all those guys can have a, a nice value where it depends on what how they're playing, who they're playing. But um, for me, I, I think Clements, we just talked about Joseph Yesesu and Remy Martin's minutes sort of being correlated. I think that him and Mitch Lightfoot probably, those minutes are correlated. And uh, Mitch is a great kid, leader, all the things that Bill Self wants, knows how Bill Self wants to play, but it's getting harder and harder just to envision more playing time for him down the stretch just because you have these other big men who are starting to show what they can do and showing that physically and athletically they can do some things that we haven't seen from KU players uh, at the five position before earlier in the season. All right, we're talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star. Another edition of Kiss, Mary Kill. None of these teams are in your top 25 this week. Two of them are in the AP poll top 25. Murray State, Wyoming, and San Francisco. Kiss, Mary Kill. Yeah, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, marry Wyoming. Uh, the head coach at Wyoming is a former assistant coach for Emporia State University. Mm. So uh, give them a little bit of love. It's kind of a, a pretty creative office where they basically post up all the time. So uh, that's pretty cool. CJ Moore, uh, you know, good friend of the athletic. He wrote around this week. If you guys want to go check that story out. Uh, so we got Murray State in San Francisco. I, I have to kiss for San Francisco. They are the analytics darlings. They are the ones that foul went up to either late in the first half or at the end of the game, and it's worked out for them because that's the analytically correct play. So I've got to give a, a shout-out and, uh, I guess, a kiss to uh, Todd Golden there uh, because he is <laughs> loving the analytics and uh, Jonathan Sapphire on his staff, a, a big numbers guy. So I guess that'll kill Murray State. I, I don't really hate any of these teams, but they're kind of one of those teams. If you look at their record 24-2, and two, usually get overrated by the uh, holsters because, hey, only two losses, you're going to move them up the rankings. But – not on my ballot yet. Need to show a little bit more in the old Ohio Valley Conference. And so um, don't hate the racers, but uh, a little bit more needed to uh, get them off of my hate list or, I guess in this case, off of my kill list. By the way, we just mentioned this. I just wanted to bring this up with you. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. The fact that North Texas is ahead of Providence is chef's kiss. Um, all right. Uh, before I let you go, Jesse, uh, one last thing with Adam. All right, Jesse, one last thing. Which is a higher number, the amount of photos you've taken with your phone or the amount of photos that have been sent to your phone? Uh, it's got to be photos taken on my phone. And uh, I'm one of those guys that I just had to buck up for the two ninety nine a month for the uh, the OI cloud just to make sure that – that's one of those people It's hard to erase things. You, know, you don't want to accidentally yeah. do something wrong, one of those – geriatric millennials who is not comfortable with technology so taking more phones and receive or taking more photos than received but i think that's partly just because i never throw anything away and, and i'm super scared so uh, i guess that's just a quirk of, of being me all right he is jesse newell check out all his work kansas city star kansas jesse thank you for the time as always appreciate it guys all right that's jesse newell
Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. You're listening to RCST. Four o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta. Craig Hershiser is going to join us in about 20 minutes from right now and help preview the City Showdown, which occurs on Friday. You'll hear it here on KLWN. Quick update, though, before we get into Around the World with Adam. Uh, Lawrence Parks and Rec has canceled all classes tomorrow. Fitness, dance, whatever classes. From 9 a.m. until 1 p.m., haven't seen anything about if schools are canceling tomorrow with all the snow projected. I think you were looking earlier, what is it, like 6 to 12 inches now? Yeah, I saw one that, that had kind of Lawrence. There was one area that said 6 to 8 inches, mm. and then another area that it was a darker shade that said 8 to 12, and Lawrence was kind of on the hairy edge of that, of that area, so anywhere from 6 to 12. Well, drive safe wherever you are, but first we got to get to Around the World with Adam. Don't have to drive at all to go around the world. No, you do not. All right. Air balloon, right? We're starting out in uh, Idaho, which could give mm. away what this is about. Looking for a last-minute Valentine's gift. This is a little outdated you by a couple days. You don't have to be days. so hard on yourself. Um, okay. Um, a new perfume from the Idaho Potato Commission. Please Pur- be potato-scented. Purports to, purports to give off the aroma of what? Potatoes. Specifically? Oh, what's it? French fries? French fries and all of their greasy, salty splendor. Dude. Whether This is from the NPR, by the way. Whether you're at a drive through restaurant or dining in, it's near impossible to not grab a fry and take a bite before you dive into your meal. J- Jamie Higgum, president and CEO of the Idaho Potato Commission, said in a statement, The smell is too good to resist, dubbed Frites by Idaho. His uh, palm frites is us. Uh, yeah, is I love French that. They make it sound French French, yeah. or sound fancy. Palm frites. French. Um, the limited edition fragrance was going on for a was going for a buck eighty nine per one point seven ounce bottle on the commission's website. It sold out. A giveaway promising more bottles of the spray ends uh, ends this Sunday. The fragrance fragrance, which the commission says captures quote one of the world's most irresistible scents is made from distilled Idaho potatoes and essential oils. The commission cited a recent national survey by the firm Polefish that found nearly 90% of Americans found the smell of French fries irresistible. Mm. The Idaho commission has additional (laughs) potato merchandise available for those addicted to spuds, including a French fry holder, Idaho potato playing cards, oh, playing cards, and a miniature potato hauling truck and a three-foot-tall spuddy Buddy. Okay, I think this would be funny if the um, perfume was just like vegetable oil to begin with. What but if also- you got home and your old lady smelled <laughs> like fries, man? No, that okay. That that's the issue. That'd here. be a letdown because you, you'd be like, oh, I smell fries. This right. is great. That's the issue. They're like whatever percent of Americans you don't want to cannot resist like the smell food. of fries. That's because I want French fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I like the smell of fries. I do not like you said. I do not want my. I don't like it when my car smells like French yeah, fries. Yeah, exactly. I don't want my wife to smell like French fries. The way fries. I want my significant other is smelling is different than the way I want my food yeah. smelling. Like, like I love the smell of garlic, but if you if a human smells like garlic, you're going to think they have B.O. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, next, we're going to Oregon. This is from the UPI in Oregon City is seeking to uh, break the Guinness World Record for the tallest what after uh, installing a 37-foot-tall this outside of their food cart plaza. Okay, so it's, I'm assuming it's food related. Is it an ice cream cone? It 
There's a 37-foot-tall fork. Ah, the so city close. of Fairview, Oregon, said the 37-foot-tall fork installed installed Tuesday outside the soon-to-open Fairview Fairview Food Plaza is believed to be the tallest in the world, and officials will seek the confirmation of the designation from Guinness World Records. So the fork came about because we wanted something on the corner, whether it was a water tower, or a windmill, or some sort of piece that's going to be on the corner. And then one of the design teams said, let's just put a fork here and we'll come back to it. Uh, Mayor Brian Cooper told KATU-TV, and over the course of multiple months, it just kind of stuck in the brain. So it was a pun. You know, let's just put a fork in this for now and move on to something else. And from that, apparently, they literally decided a fork have to build a 37-foot fork. As you come up with an entire marketing scheme of take a left at the fork, the fork in Fairview. Eh, Fork in the road. Current record holder for the world's tallest fork is 35 feet tall, stands in (laughs) Missouri. I love this. They're not even passing it. They're trying to beat it easily. Not by one feet, feet, but by two. Uh, Apparently, it's somewhere in Missouri. It doesn't say where. The Fairview Food Food Plaza public-private partnership between the Fairview Urban Renewal Agency Property over owner Denise Arndt and Plaza operator Justin Huang is expected to open in April. Hmm. So, a bunch of food, I guess a bunch of restaurants, and maybe food trucks or something, and a big-ass fork to show it all off. That'd be cool if it was a building shape like the fork instead of just a giant fork. In, in the building, like you had elevators you had to go up, and then the forks are like each tower is something different. Like one tower is the barbecue tower. One tower is the pizza tower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's not a bad and then, idea. Uh, like at the top, you have the rooms are like one of those buildings where it rotates around. You can see the city. Yeah, like a revolving restaurant. Yeah. Not a bad idea at all. Uh, we should change Bartle Hall. Those those structures on type of Bartle Hall should change to some sort of eating utensil. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we're going moving on now to Arizona. This also from the uh, UPI. An Arizona priest has resigned from the Diocese of Phoenix after officials announced that a single change word invalidated all of the baptisms he performed in June of 2021. The Diocese of Phoenix said all baptisms performed by the Reverend Andres Arango uh, until June 17, 2021 were invalid because the priest said the word we. Instead of the word I, when reciting the phrase, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Derek, you were uh, married in the Catholic Church. I got to assume you were baptized in the Catholic Church. When did you get baptized? As a baby or when you got older? No, I got baptized as a baby. This is interesting. Um, I wonder if this is going to spark any debates like in the Catholic, because I, I at first when you... like. Grammatically saying we baptize you would sound weird, but again, it's it's like you said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I, that makes sense what he's saying. Well, yeah, to but me. I think he's. I think the argument. It, I think this is insane. Um, first off, I, well, I I would suggest it's it's merely a symbolic thing, but it, there are again, I, I'll say this. Also, having grown up Catholic, I I, I know for a fact that in in the Catholic Church, communion is not just symbolic. They believe in. Um, um, uh, I can't remember the exact word, transfixiation, I think, uh, or something like that, where they literally believe in communion. There, A lot of other Christian religions in communion, it's symbolic, eating the bread and drinking the blood of Christ. Um, in the Catholic Church, they literally believe that they are eating the physical blood and, and body and drinking the physical blood and body of Jesus Christ. So it's probably, in, in a lot of people's minds, beyond just a symbol, so maybe that's why it's, 
they think it's such a big deal to get the words right. Yeah, I mean, I, I get where they're coming from from a standpoint of you can't allow, like, <laughs> the priest can't just go up there and just, just freeform it. Here, the whole thing. Have right? some water, kid. But that seems like such a small thing to me. And again, like I said, like, I understand where the we would come from there. And I don't know. Maybe you let this one pass. Um, he resigned. Uh, the diocese says he remains a priest in good standing. It saddens me to learn that I have performed invalid baptisms throughout my ministry as a priest by regularly using an incorrect formula. I deeply regret my error and how this has affected numerous people yeah, in see, your this parish sucks and for elsewhere. Everyone. This <laughs> sucks for everyone. Now they're going to have to, if they want to be baptized, go back. You know what a lot of people are thinking right now? They're not thinking, oh my gosh, this, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, this invalidates my baby's baptism, blah, blah, blah. You know what they're thinking? They're going, I got to freaking waste another yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Are you kidding I gotta me? I got to take off work this afternoon now to this go do is, this. Come on. Just because he said I instead of we. Yeah. Yeah, that's, gosh, what does that mean for, like, because I thought you had to be baptized before you get confirmed. Oh, yeah, by far. So do you have to re-go through confirmation? Oh, well, my it goodness. depends on if you're, if you are, con I mean, if you're, if you're baptized as a baby, you don't get confirmed till you're 12 or 13. But that's what I'm saying. What if somebody. If you're, if you're like, one of those people who, because, like, uh, you know, if, my, if you are, you know, if you are, if you didn't grow up Catholic and you want to get married in the Catholic Church, you would get baptized as right. an adult and get and, and do confession but and that's do what confirmation. Saying, would that if since that's a prerequisite to getting confirmed, if, would you have you to happen re, after the get fact? Reconfirmed. Yeah, that's it's a good thing. Like if your marriage, if you, oh, you know, man, if, you got, if you got baptized that June, got confirmed that July, to then get married in the Catholic Church that September, they're like, oh, bruh. I get like, why rules are in place. My but parents like this seems like one of those things you bend the rules. for. You want to talk know. about my parents' marriage didn't count till I was in about third grade. What? Um, yeah, my mom. I who maybe I shouldn't be talking about this over the radio, but she doesn't <laughs> care that much. So my mom was married to somebody before she married my mm -hmm. father, and my dad grew up Catholic, and um, she because she had a marriage before, they were not actually married in the Catholic Church. So throughout my childhood, they didn't go to communion, et cetera, et cetera, and then in about third grade, my mother had that previous that first marriage annulled. And um, I remember that night. It was it was us kids. My they had a couple witnesses who were two of my parents' best friends. Um, it was some Friday night in like March, and they they had my mom had taken the steps and and they actually got married within the Catholic Church. And I just I stood there in the church going, Do I not count then? Because I was born with all of this before this. So <laughs> am I? Do I good count? Here? Yeah. And then the other thing, when I was a kid, this could be a sign. Um, maybe I was not, maybe my baptism wasn't valid. When I was a kid, I passed out a bunch in church. Because, you know, like if you stand up too quick and you keel over or you lock your knees yeah. and you fall over. That happened to me multiple times what during mass. Yeah. That happened during, during like, and I haven't been to mass um long time. I mean, since well over 12, probably 13 years. Anyway. Um, and I haven't gone to mass regularly since I was probably 14, 15 years old. Um, but when I was a kid, I would stand up and either from locking my knees or whatever the case might be, I would, I would pass out. Um, and so, but maybe, maybe it wasn't about locking my knees. Maybe it was, there was some demon going, Hey, his birth doesn't count. They weren't married in the Catholic church when it happened. Fall over kid. 
or something like that. You know, however a demon mm-hmm. talks. That's my impression of a demon. Mm. I think we got time for a quick one. Story. All right. A man stole some. This is going to the AP in Tucson, Arizona. A man has been arrested for allegedly stealing a fossilized dinosaur claw valued at $25 thousand dollars i'm surprised from, it's not more from a vendor in tucson last month and then trying to resell it according to authorities it was stolen on january 30th from a vendor at the city's annual gym and mineral gem and mineral show if i can learn how to talk tucson police said christopher thomas two two first names 39 allegedly tried to sell the claw on february 8th to another vendor who recognized the ad- item and alerted what an idiot and alerted police you didn't just like steal you steal it from one vendor what if he went, what if he tried to do it at the exact same like show like he stole it from one vendor and then went to a booth like eight feet down hey buy this yeah. where'd you Look get it found. never yeah. mind where i got it you want to buy it or Why not, not? Yeah. it was unclear monday if thomas had a lawyer who could speak on his behalf about the case so we'll see the dinosaur claw is now in colorado with its owner safe and sound yeah. good for them yeah that's the other thing too it's not like like i said it's it's not a common item it's not like hey i got this iphone that i i stole from somewhere and i just reset it and unlocked it would you like to buy it and you're just like, yeah, iPhone, that's a normal thing people sell. It's a dinosaur claw. Like, there's you only a certain finite you, number you of places cro- you can get that from. Very rarely do you. I would say, like, if I, I'm just telling you right now, if I come across a dinosaur claw, it's not going to be honestly. <laughs> no. If you ever come over to my house an and, I, and I look and I and you look and I see a dinosaur claw and my answer isn't, <laughs> that is a replica, I got a gift shop and it is a real thing, you need to call the cops on me. Because I will never own a real dinosaur fossil, mm. honestly. You say that, you never know what's in your backyard. All right, he's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Craig Hershiser talks high school basketball with us next. This weather update is brought to you by Jones Advisory Group. Money Matters, Sundays, noon to 1. FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN weather from the... Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back in. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam DeVetta. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. You know, we, we had some Jersey rafter, or not Jersey rafter, Jersey retirement in the rafters at Allenfield House talk over the last couple of weeks. And, and normally that's more conversation that you would save for the off season or the dog days of sports in the summer. It just kind of came up organically because of the whole Joel Embiid conversation with, you know, James Harden getting traded over and, and Joel Embiid being the MVP favorite. Like, what would that mean for his Jersey retirement? Should it matter at all? Why would it not matter? To, you know, the, the two different sides of things. And so we talked to Brian Haney about it on uh, last Friday's show. And go check out uh, out that interview in the Best of RCST podcast if you missed it. Last night on Hawk Talk with Bill Self, Brian asked Bill Self that very question about Joel Embiid. Somebody asked me a question on a radio station, one of our affiliates this week, that if Joel Embiid were to win the NBA MVP, would that justify down the road someday ever changing the criteria to put his number up in the rafters? Yes. Therefore, putting the priority on pro career, not just what you did in college. You know, you know what? I, I, uh, uh, that's a great question, and that'll be for another coach uh, after I'm gone. But the way I understand the criteria – 
is uh, it's not near as strict as what some people have made it out to be. Uh, you, you could make a strong case that somebody had a much better career than somebody whose numbers hung in the rafters uh, uh, or, or, or vice versa. I mean, somebody that, that, that maybe had a better career over time, uh, but, but uh, 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 is, is hung and then a guy, I'm sorry, but but a guy that maybe had a better career over time that gets no chance to be hung, and a guy that is a freshman, but he's a Big 12 player of the year, he automatically goes up because of criteria. The person that got that, that, that really, by that criteria, that, get, that got it worse than anybody's Wiggs. Wiggs was the best player in our league. They voted for it the, the game before the, he at West Virginia where he got 40, and he finished second player of the year. He should have been player of the year in our league. Is that Edgem? Uh-huh. Okay. But, but, and that's not a knock to Melvin. But, sure. but, I mean, Wiggs was the best player and, 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 and on the best team. And, and so uh, he, go, he, he will not go up by our criteria. So, uh, but, but somebody else could grow up, go up and, and basically not be – an All-American or be uh, uh, a player of the year. What, what, what about somebody like Sharon, although he deserved to go up? Let's say Sharon wasn't a consensus All-American, but he is first-team All-League three years. Well, that doesn't get you into the criteria, but if you're first-team All-League for three years, that, that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, uh, would you rather be first-team All-League for three years or would you rather be player of the year for one year and not make the other leagues? I mean, not make the teams the other years. And so... Uh, it, it, the criteria is the criteria, but as far as I'm concerned, it's not etched in stone. Okay. So, so uh, if Joe's the MVP of the league, I think that we should, you know, probably consider uh, uh, for potential donations for sure to get it to get to, to get his uh, his name up there. That would be. Huge. And I also think you could consider Wiggs. I yeah. think you could consider Perry Ellis, and I think you can consider Keith Langford. Uh, Keith Langford scored 1,800 points here. And never made first team, Amazing. but you look at his career. You know, if 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 you beat uh, 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 Syracuse, he's the MVP of the Final Four. Yep. I mean, without that, question, that would have gotten him up. That would have got him up. So, because the guy misses a shot or makes a shot, that's the reason why you don't go up or not. I, I I'm not buying into all that. And you look at it as a whole; those guys were all really good players. And 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 also, there were some players from Coach Owens' era when I first got here that weren't up there because of criteria. And then we looked at it and said, you know what? These guys deserve to be up there as well. And so there were some players, i.e. Bud and some other guys that were put up there after the fact. So uh, uh, I think those things are still open for possibilities. All right. First of all, most importantly, somebody, somebody you're asked by Hmm. somebody on one of your affiliates. affiliates? Hmm. Hmm. About the Lawrence affiliate, Katie. The Lord's affiliate. Drop my name. I did like self, self. I mean, he didn't know where it came from, but he did say that's a great question. So, uh, but in all honesty, like I thought it was a very thoughtful response and very interesting. There's, there's a couple different things I want to get into there. Um, the first of them is the idea of Joel, Joel Embiid getting in. Sounds like to me that can, would be a can, thing. Can I add real quick before we get too much into the specifics yeah. of this conversation? I love listening to Bill Self talk about, you can hear in his voice how important the history of this place mm-hmm. is. 
Like, and he's described himself, and this is somewhat getting off the rails to this particular conversation, but he's described himself, and, and not just himself, but anybody who holds his job as the caretaker of the program. And, like, you can hear, he doesn't just use the the history of this place as, as a selling point. Like, you, you can really hear it, and, 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 and you said the word thoughtful, which is a great word for it. You can just hear how important the history of this place is to that man. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. He he knows it so much. I, I was thinking about that, too. Like, whenever the day comes that Bill Self retires or whatever uh, ventures off from Kansas, like, it's going to be so hard to find another coach, not just to, who can be really good uh, as a basketball coach and, and do things on the court from that standpoint, but who's able to, you know, dig down in the history of a program like he has because he – yeah, every time you have a press conference, like he he knows that stuff uh, really well. Um, but yeah, so the Joel Wiggins convert or the Joel Embiid Andrew Wiggins conversation very interesting because you do get to the point of if Joel gets in, what does that mean for Andrew Wiggins? Because of the fact, if you're just basing it on the career of Kansas, Wiggins had the better career. Wiggins uh, was more impactful, like he said, the whole Big Twelve Player of the Year thing. I I didn't realize that, by the way. I didn't realize that they had voted on the award. Before that game, I didn't either. I knew that that loss in Morgantown was it was the last game of the year and was Wiggins' crazy performance. Um, but I did not realize. I knew Elgin won it, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize that that they had voted the day before. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if Wiggins gets in, which it sounds like Self would be in favor of Wiggins and Embiid. For the record, I've decided I would be for Joel Embiid. I'm I'm not totally sure what I would do with Andrew Wiggins. I'm leaning toward no on that, but. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, what would that mean for Josh Jackson and Ben McLemore? Because, yeah, in my estimation, Josh Jackson was better than Andrew Wiggins. I think he, I think he played on a better, more successful team. That's the thing I, with I, I with mean, Ben Wiggins, McLemore. I think Wiggins was was I I, I mean he. I don't think J Jackson didn't break his freshman scoring record, did he? And I think Wiggins broke Henry's. Who broke Danny Manning's? I just thought Jackson was better. Jackson in like was more ways. like Jackson he was, was so fun to watch. He was really really fun to watch. I always think Wiggins is kind of um, and, and look the expectations were 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 there and that's fine. He he was the first, if I'm not mistaken, Rivals and 24/7's first ever 1,000 graded recruit. He was amazing. Um, he started off his career with that Duke game, and 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 self even said at one point in the offseason, Wiggins is an alpha, and that kind of proved out to not necessarily be the case when he was at Kansas, um, with the exception of maybe that Duke in the West Virginia game. He really didn't come out as an alpha in, in games, but he was fantastic. I just think Wiggins, he came in. LeBron was his, you know, recruit as far as his recruiting number uh, rating. one pick in the draft after too. Um, yeah, the you know Kevin Durant, his as far as recruiting, he's got a bit higher recruiting grade than Kevin Durant. Like he had all these names attached to him, and I think he was he was amazing. He had a there's no sugarcoating, and he had a very bad game in the loss to Stanford. Um, but I, I think Wiggins was well, that's what's I, funny. I, like I think Wiggins was incredible if, his one year. At if Joel Embiid plays through the injury, people always talk about that hypothetical of how how far would they go. I think beyond that, like forget that part of it. If Joel Embiid plays and he's healthy, that might have the biggest impact on Andrew Wiggins in the way he's received by fans afterwards because that might not be his last game. And yeah. who knows what if or you know, or maybe he's for matchup purposes and they defend him in a different way and he scores more than four yeah. against Stanford. Well, it's like if that team makes the final four, 
I feel like it's it's a very different conversation. I you feel know? the same way about Xavier Henry, yeah. too, by the way. Yeah, or if, like, they lose in the Elite Eight in a close game to Florida or something, but Wiggins yeah. has 20 points. Like, he's, he's just received differently. It just is. Um, you know, I've been, I've been under the assumption that the, I guess, quote-unquote, I call it a penalty. It's not really a penalty, but um, for not being a total KU honor, because that's what it would be if you do put like Joel Embiid in, in the in the Raptors. It's not totally based on the KU side of things. It's the basketball career as a whole, but he also played at KU. I've always viewed the penalty as, well, it just won't go chronologically, because right now we're working chronologically. It went, what, Sharon Collins to then Marcus, or to Cole Aldridge to then Thomas Robinson to then Marcus Morris. And I think chronologically, or Marcus Morris to T-Rob, which T-Rob will be next, um, then it would have to go T-Rob to Joel Embiid. Didn't we hear that they wanted T-Rob this year, though? Yeah, that's what and, Brian and, and said. They could, and the they Missouri couldn't game. make it work for mm-hmm. the Missouri game, and they couldn't make it work due to scheduling things. Yeah, so it, it'll happen at some point. But I, I, I don't think it will be chronological. I think that'll be the the penalty, I guess, so to speak. That I also maybe think, it'll skip around and, and then and move back. Self-making a note, you could take a few things away from that. you know. But Self said for the next coach to, to, to think about, after he's gone, what I took and, and look, there you know nobody knows how much longer Self will be here, um, and I think a lot of KU fans my age and older are all always gun shy about thinking about a coach leaving because of Roy. Um, but in my mind, I think they're going. What that told me was it would at the very least wait till the end of Joel Embiid's NBA career. Yes, that's kind of how I took that as well. Um, Unless, what if that was his hint that he's like going pro next year or something? But yeah, well, um, I'm going to be coaching Joel next year in Philadelphia. <laughs> so, peace. <laughs> he brought up a lot of different names in that conversation, though, that I want to kind of go over. Um, I think one notable name that he didn't bring up that I want to get to for an, uh, for a second, Aaron Miles. Which his yeah. case is always very interesting to me because Aaron Miles literally is the all time assist leader at KU. He is literally the all time assist leader in Big Twelve history. So nobody has been better at getting assists in Big 12 history than Aaron Miles, but he had zero all Big 12 first teams. He had zero all Big 12 second teams. Tough to get that guy insane. in there, right? Who else was – but those numbers, man, I just – I feel like it should be part of the criteria. And, and look, advanced numbers are, are, are changing the importance of different statistics – but I feel like if you're the all-time leader in the history of a program in a certain in a conference, ca- in a, and and yes, not just in a program, in an entire conference, in a given category, like a big category, like, like that. points, like assists, and rebounds. Brady Heslip isn't going to be in the Baylor Hall of Fame. At least I would hope not. But I don't really know their deal for most threes in big yeah, yeah, history, yeah. right? But but I mean, points, assists, and rebounds are are three of the five. Assist is one of the uh, criteria mm-hmm. to, to judge a, a triple or double-double. Yes. like So it is an important statistic. And so if you get the all-time leader in your program's history, oh, by the way, in your conference's history, in one of those statistical categories, and he's not up there, that is that is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, personally, I would have him in, but I do get why he's not because of none of those all-Big 12 picks. Um, he wasn't even brought up, though, by Bill Self, so that doesn't even sound like that's on the radar there. Keith Langford, the guy who played with Aaron Miles, is very interesting. When you look at the top 10 scoring list all-time at KU, there are only, I mean, there like Frank Mason is like sixth. He will get in. He's just not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, of the guys who are 
actually on that list. Like all of them are in, with the exception of Frank, who will get in, Keith Langford, and then Perry Ellis, which I want to get to Perry Ellis here in a second. But with Keith Langford, like you have the individual stats, the team achievements are there. He made two Final Fours, including like was referred by Bill Self and Brian Haney. If you know Hakeem Warwick doesn't block that shot, and maybe the game. Uh, goes KU's favor, like all of a sudden he for sure is in because he would have been Final Four MOP. And even though Keith never had a first-team All-Big 12 season, he did have two second teams. He did have an All-Big 12 honorable mention pick. I would personally put Keith Langford in. I, yeah, I, and and look, I, there has to be some level of importance to the program. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, And that's kind of an arbitrary, non-quantifiable thing. But um, I, I think, look, I think Aaron Miles and Keith Langford are also maybe even more than Wiggins because Wiggins only played one year and those guys played for four. I think uh, Miles and Langford might somewhat be victims of how their careers ended because they lost to Bucknell in the first round of the tournament. And that was a team that kind of from basically the first week of the season until maybe mid-February, they were one of the two or three top-ranked teams in the nation. I don't know if they ever fell out of the top three until February 10th or so of that year. And so I think because that they, you know, they stumbled down the stretch and only got it, you know, and then they were a three seed when they thought they could have been the number one overall at one point in the year. Um, and then on top of that, they they get bounced by their 14 seed, ending KU's stretch of consecutive first-round tournament victories. Um, I think they're somewhat victim to to how that career ended. And it's, it's, you know, it, people aren't looking at careers as a whole. Yes, and like I if also that, think... If that team goes to the Elite Eight, I think at least Langford's in. Well, and, and in the same way that you could have said about the final or the national championship game against Syracuse, if that if shot goes in and he wins final four MVP, MOP, he's 100% in. You could also say, well, if they just beat Georgia Tech in the then he's Elite made Eight, he's three, made three straight final, final fours, four. and he's for sure in then at that and point. And I'm trying to go back to that. I can't remember the performances of, of who would have won uh, regional most outstanding player because I can't remember the... I don't know, probably like the, Jarrett Jack or they, something. Well, but if if KU had won, oh. I like it because I don't know who their best player against UAB and Georgia Tech were, but the point still stands. You would have had a class that made three straight Final Fours. Yeah. Um, here's the guy that I actually... I was looking through this, and I, I had kind of been under the assumption just through my head, okay, it's going to go from... If it's chronologically, it's going to go T-Rob... And then it'll jump up to Frank Mason and then Devontae Graham. And then maybe they'll work back and get a Keith Langford in. I was looking at this. I kind of think that Perry Ellis might be a lock. I know there's a lot of qualifiers. I'll just, I'll be as blunt as possible. Perry Ellis should get his jersey retired at KU. Well, um, I, I didn't know there was an argument that it like there was a discussion. Oh, no. That this it wouldn't was, happen. this was like a very, for a couple of years, this was like a very heated argument. Um, maybe we'll do this for the daily poll tomorrow. What more than would they want of, of him? I mean, I, I think it's just because there wasn't that, you know, he was never like big 12 player of the yeah, year. That's true. He never made a final four. You know, you, you just don't have like the, like Perry Ellis was never one of the five best players in college basketball. He was always a good player. And you have the same problem with Andrew Wiggins. His last game was very much a letdown. He had four points in that game against Villanova and he was just, you know, couldn't really do much for that team. But here, perfect example, blind resume. Perry Ellis, I'll just say, is player A. He has one second-team All-American pick, one All-America honorable mention pick, two All-Big 12 first teams, three All-Big 12 picks, made one Elite Eight, two Sweet Six teams. He is ninth at KU in total points scored. Player B, 
made one second-team All-American team, same as Perry Ellis. He did win one Big 12 Player of the Year, which Perry didn't win, but if we're going to say we hold that against Perry, do you realize why Perry didn't win Big 12 Player of the Year? It was Buddy freaking healed yeah, that year. Buddy healed. So you can't hold that against him. He was also him. National Player of the Year. Correct. Uh, player B had one All-Big 12 first team. Again, Perry had two of them. Player B also had one All-Big 12 season, whereas Perry had three of them. Uh, player A, player B had one Elite Eight appearance. Same with Perry. He never went to the Final Four. Player B also had two Sweet 16s. Same as Perry, 29th at KU in total points board, scored. Player B has his jersey retired. Is it Marcus Morris? That is Marcus Morris. Okay. Which, again, if we're picking teams like who's the best individual player or who had the best individual season, like Marcus Morris is the answer. Yeah. But in terms of most there, accolades, there in are, terms of what you accomplished, it's Perry Ellis. And if there was a Buddy Heald in 2011, would... Marcus Morris Probably had not. one Big 12 player of the year because Buddy Heald's season was freakish. Yeah. Just like Frank Mason's was the following year when he won national player of the year. Um, I Honestly, man, I think multiple first-team all-conference should be part of just part of yeah. the written criteria. Two first-team all-conference. And self conference. said in that audio that, that the criteria can be – it's there for a reason to have structure, but it can be wiggled around and, and loosened, especially, as he said, with older players from the Owens era. Um I just, but man, I would say part of that criteria should include multiple All Big Twelve first teams. Is is a big like that's an achievement. Well, that self said, you know, three All Big Twelve teams. I kind of wonder if he was directly referring to Perry Ellis in that quote. So here's my guess: Joel in, Andrew Wiggins in. This is my guess what they're going to do. Not necessarily what I would do. Um, the Perry Ellis in, Keith Langford in. Do you disagree I, with I, any the, of those? No, I, I would. No, and the reason, especially because self, with the exception of Perry Ellis, self brought all those other guys up by by name. Mm -hmm. Now Embiid, it was brought up to him, but he brought up Wiggins by name. He brought up Keith Langford by name. Yeah. So I, I would say all three of those, Wiggins, Embiid, Langford, are in based on that discussion, and then just based on Perry Ellis's resume, I think he's in. All right, he's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. Two hours down, one to go. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Five o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. With Adam Dravetta, Derek Johnson, here on another edition of RCST. Uh, we talked a little bit about Zach Clements yesterday and the importance that could be of, of a ceiling raiser if he enters into the rotation and how it was maybe a little bit of a surprise that he was the guy over Mitch Lightfoot because we've seen so many times under Bill Self, where maybe a guy has a, a nice breakout game, but it doesn't necessarily lead to automatically more minutes because maybe he gets beat out in practice or Self wants to go back to the guy who earned it to begin with, and that guy earns it back, and then it's it's never really given back. Um, so I thought Mitch Lightfoot would still be the first guy off the bench, but it wasn't indeed uh, the case in that game. Now, at Hawk Talk last night, <laughs> because it was funny, I, I think at least for me personally, after the game Saturday against Oklahoma, like I said, I was not ready to commit to the idea that Zach Clements was going to for sure be a part of the rotation and that it wasn't just a matchup thing or a one good game. But then after the second game against Oklahoma State, because they didn't have a stretch five, like that wasn't really a matchup where you go in and say, well, matchup-wise, this is the matchup for Zach Clements. There was no Groves. No, exactly. Um, they just have a shot-blocking five. So for that reason and the fact that he did play, as the first big off the bench, that he did play the most backup big minutes, that Mitch Lightfoot only played in garbage time in the last 34 seconds of the first half, that was enough for me to say, okay, 
Maybe this is a, a real thing. Maybe this is something that's true, that Zach Clements has emerged, that Zach Clements has usurped Mitch Lightfoot in the rotation, and that he could be that backup center moving forward. Well, sure enough, last night on Hawk Talk, this was Bill Self talking about uh, Zach Clements in the rotation in regards to Mitch Lightfoot. One other thing I'd like to say is this, and this isn't being positive, negative, or anything. This is factual. Uh, don't read into anything that Mitch didn't play much last night uh, because I wanted to see what Zach was like uh, and give him an opportunity so we can ha- kind of have some some an idea moving forward, kind of how we can utilize him. Mitch is Mitch is uh, in the same place he's always been with us, and and, and so don't because you know he he gives us a chance to win. He's so supportive of everybody else, but he didn't get a chance to play last night because David's playing well, and you want to give Zach a chance, and you don't give Zach near as big a chance if if if, if you try to split the time with Mitch. So that was that was a reason for that last night as much as anything. So a couple things of note there. One, One do you believe him? That's my biggest hmm. thing of note. Do I believe him? Well, I mean, I don't know why he would would lie about it. And, and this is yeah. something you brought up to me in regards to that quote in, in the context around it, which we, we didn't share the full show, obviously. Um, but hopefully you listened to it last night on KLWN. He, he wasn't asked about that. He wasn't asked by Brian. He brought that up on his own yeah, doing. Somebody brought up Zach. And and kind of what kind of guy is is he as a play you know as a player, um, self told a story about uh, how I guess his mom is in town now uh, has been in town recently and and she mentioned he could um, she, I guess she noted that Zach Zach Clements is a little skinny, which led to self saying yeah he is but he plays hard et cetera et cetera and then at the he kind of he's at the very end he said you know one thing I want to make note of so like he. He brought that the, the the discussion was around Clements, but nobody said, "Wait a minute, he's playing a little more." He he brought that on his own. Yeah, so I I think it's truthful, but I, I guess I don't know. Maybe it's it's one of those things where it's um like let's let's you know focus too much on on the exact wording here because what he said was in regards to Mitch Life of playing minimal minutes, um, not to read into it. Do you think he was more making reference of it's not that Zach won't continue playing or be in front of him, but I don't expect Mitch Lightfoot to like not play basically. Yeah, and I also think he's he's making sure he, he kind of want, wants to make sure that he still has I don't know what to like outs isn't the right word because it's not like anybody's gonna like scream and yell at him if things change with how Mitch and Zach's minutes go but he wants but Mitch I, I, to be ready exactly because, yeah. he wants Mitch to be ready and I think he wants um the opportunity to if if there's a reason whether it be matchup whether it be Clements is struggling whatever the case may be he he wants it to be known either to us or to the players probably more likely the players that Mitch is you know don't be shocked if if Mitch plays 12 minutes in in yes. the upcoming game. And I think that's for two reasons. One, I think it would be a matchup thing. Maybe there's a certain matchup that he likes Mitch better than Zach Clements maybe for the shot blocking aspect. Um or it could just be, you know, what happens if Zach Clements has a bad game? You don't want to just say, "Oh, well sorry Mitch, you're never going to play again." Like you want Mitch to be ready like you said, and and be able to, if Zach's having a bad game, come in for maybe that specific game, or who knows, what if, you know, Mitch Lightfoot 
in that situation, Zach Clements is a bad game. Mitch Lightfoot comes in, plays great. Then does Mitch regain a, a kind of a foothold in the rotation? So you're kind of being non-promising there. And he, I, ne- he never said he never said no to Zach either. Yes, he just flat said he he never said this is a definitive no to Zach. He just said it is not a definitive no to Mitch. Yeah, and then so I think that thing. now means they're both options. Like David McCormick played 28 minutes in that game on Monday night against Oklahoma State. So there weren't a lot of big minutes to go around. Well, we know the story of David McCormick with the inconsistencies. You're not going to count on 28 David McCormick minutes every night, right? Uh, You might count on 20 to 25. So let's hypothetically say Dave is only giving you a 22-minute game. Then all of a sudden, you have six more minutes to give the five-man. Maybe two of them go to Zach. Maybe the other three go to Mitch. And at that point, Mitch is... You know, it's it's still, I guess, minimal minutes, but not as much. Like, it's part of the rotation. Or what if Dave only plays 20 minutes that day, Zach gives you 10, Mitch gives you 10, right? Yeah. Like, there's a very real scenario where that happens. I, I kind of parse it that way. I do also, though, to kind of go opposite to that, find it interesting of the idea of I wanted to see what Zach Clements could do. Because, again, you could take that in two different ways. You could take that as... You know, he he earned himself into more playing time on Saturday, and so I wanted to give him a bigger opportunity and see what he could do. Or you could take that as, no, this was more of just like a tryout, and we don't totally know how he thinks about that. Yeah, I in another way, I was also going to add, what what does he look like against a, a team with a more standard five? Now, the five has, has changed so much over the last 20 years or so, but I do think, you know, what what does Zach Clements look like when we're not bringing him in just for matchup purposes? Well, it's weird because I think the biggest thing that I would worry about would be, do you have another big man who is somebody who can catch the ball on the, on the block and score? Because Musa Cisse, in terms of just like what he does, he is more of the traditional center. Like He, he doesn't shoot threes. He's yet to attempt a three this year. He uh, is averaging, he's like a good rebounder, six rebound, or fine rebounder, good offensive rebounder, six rebounds in 20 minutes a game, but good offensive rebounder, averages two blocks a game. He's one of the better shot blockers in the Big 12. Like from that standpoint, he is a standard center. So it's not as if you say that guy would be like this, uh, you know, stretch five the same way Zach is, but he's also a skinnier big man, 6'10, 225. He's also a guy that, like I said, it's not part of Oklahoma State's offense. Just throw him the ball on the block and say, hey, go make a move. Go hit a turnaround jumper. Go hit a hook shot or something. Yeah. He's more of a pick-and-roll guy or I'm going to be in the dunker spot. And if if somebody overhelps or something, I'll be there to, to clean it up or, or dunk it or whatever. And Tanner Groves was more of the stretch five. I think what happens when you play a team who has a big man that they're just going to dump it to on the post. What are you and- going to do when, when you play a team that uses their big, like, KU uses Dave. And and I guess maybe the answer to that is, well, how many teams really are there that do that? Because I'm I'm trying to think through off the top of my head, just in the Big 12, (laughs) I'm having trouble coming up with another one that does that. Well, we had this discussion a a couple weeks ago about just based on all Big 12, how how few true centers there are. Um, So we've already kind of talked about on this show how few true centers there are in this conference. So maybe maybe that bodes well. Maybe that means that hey, he's he's pretty matchup proof the rest of the way. But you know, you could run into an NCAA tournament game where, yeah. where a team has that, right? Um, so I think I think that's just probably a, a big part of it all. Do you uh, think there's any part of self? I know that it was really kind of that 18 t- team that he he changed things. 
Do you think there was ever part of self that was tempted or considered, man, I really like this Clements kid. He's a five-star recruit. Let's go back to three around two and play him with, with Dave. Hmm. Well, I, I think it's an interesting discussion because he brought on technically two of those um, types of big men with Cam big yeah. men, uh, with Cam Martin and Zach Clements to where I I would not be, I I think there was actually conversation in the summer I do remember about you know maybe that was the idea that he wanted to play a little bit of that but then I think as the summer went on and you start to realize that hey if we play this way. I don't know if Zach Clements or Cam Martin has the foot speed to defend another wing at the four. I think mm-hmm. you kind of you work yourself away from that. Yeah, that's the is is I think other teams are forcing your hand in how mm-hmm. you play your big men. Yeah, like I I kind of think like think about this KJ Adams, if he was recruited in two thousand five, he's a small forward. You know, even though he can't shoot, yeah, it's just like oh he'll just be a good driver and good defender. Yeah, right? and now he's a center. Yeah, the way other teams are using their their centers, you would almost. I'm trying to think of an example. Like Zach Clements would have to be such an athletic freak to be that, because you would then be saying, "All right, we're going to play a more traditional three around two with two bigs, and you're going to be hanging out a lot um, around, not not at, but around the blocks with uh, David McCormick. But oh, by the way, on defense, you're guarding a four, and you would have to be so special athletically in order to do that." I'll say this though, it would not surprise me as we're looking if you look ahead to next year, if not the primary lineup, but when you look at Zach Clements, Cam Martin, um, KJ Adams, who again I technically would consider a big at this point in time, and then you're adding on Ernest Duday, a McDonald's All American, Zuby Ejiofer, who is a high level four star recruit, who knows what happens at like the transfer portal or whatnot. Um, based on that collection of bigs. I know. Who knows? David McCormick could even come back. You want to zig when everybody else is zagging. I mean, Roy Williams did it for a while and made it work. You just have to specialize in in certain other areas to take advantage of it. But, like, it would not shock me utterly if Bill Self was like, hey, let's get back to this. Again, not as the primary lineup, but five, ten minutes a game because that's still deep down, like, in his DNA. And I I think the more ways in which you can effectively play basketball, not just change your rotation for the sake of changing your rotation— but but bring out multiple rotations that can defend well. Like some rotations are going to defend better, some are going to be better on offense. But if you can put out multiple rotations that do at least one thing really well and the other one serviceably, um, you're just you're going to be more difficult, especially come tournament time, because you're going to have an answer for basically everybody's adjustment. I think where that comes into play is not going to be with the two big lineup, obviously, this year. And who knows if that ever is a thing again, yeah, even I just, though I think it will be. But I where I do think it comes up, where I do think it comes up is the two lead guard lineup this year of being flexible and being able to do that. Uh, we saw Yesufu, Joe Yesufu, play a ton of minutes in the game on Monday night. He played 22 minutes in that game. And that was, I think, a, a big answer to a question I had coming into the game. Uh, on Saturday against Oklahoma, Joe Yesufu only played four minutes. And I kind of wondered if, you know, was that a signaling from Bill Self of this is just a bad matchup or you had a bad start to the game? Um, or was it a, uh-oh, you've fallen out of the Bill Self trust tree and, and now you're no longer a part of that to where it's going to impact moving forward? Well, uh, that certainly wasn't the case. Played 22 minutes in that game. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that 
the great Dewan Harris games were uh, have come. I don't know if that was a great Dewan Harris game on Monday against Oklahoma State, but certainly I think it was a really good Dewan Harris game. He scored he had, a lot. Didn't he have five assists and one turnover? Or I was think that Saturday? So. Was that Saturday that I'm thinking of? I don't know. He he had a good game though. He's had, he's had point being multiple good games in a row. Yeah, but I I think it is not at all a coincidence in my eyes. Um, yeah, in that game against Oklahoma State, twelve points, five assists, one turnover. That some of his better games, and like the Oklahoma game is, I think, a perfect example of the opposite of this. Not that he played a bad game, but against Oklahoma, he played 39 minutes, six points, three assists, two turnovers. Like, there's not, like, a ton there for, there's a little empty calories there. Um, And you would say that when it comes to the other point guard, it was Joe Lesafu in terms of uh, minutes on Saturday. But see, I, I think there is a big coincidence between the better Dewan Harris games coming along in games where he gets to play a lot with a second lead guard, I just think absolutely like I, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I think there's so much evidence both ways. Like you, you've got enough evidence of him playing really well with another lead guard, and enough evidence with him, as you put it, not necessarily playing poorly, but less effectively when Ochai fills that two role. Yeah. And so yeah, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that that's exactly correct. That that he is positively effective when another lead guard is on the floor. There's just so many reasons for it. Uh, you can rest more, whether it's being able to actually legitimately come out of the game or just when you're actually on the court, it's easier to rest more if you don't have to bring the ball up the court every time or start the offense every time. On the topic of rest, it'll be huge to get at least either Pettiford or Remy Martin back because I do want to know, we don't have the audio, but last night um, on... Hawk Talk, Self did say, as far as the rest for Dewan goes, they brought in Pettiford for a minute, even though he was struggling uh, from a health standpoint. He, he he had to ask Pettiford, can you give us a minute just to get Dewan a breather? Because Dewan was was out. I mean, he was he was really, um, you know, struggling from a from a um, conditioning standpoint. Well, that's what's important with the Joe Yesfu emergence. It's that twofold well we'll see what happens with Remy Martin but if he does come back then all of a sudden you know that playing those two guard lineups are are definitely going to be a thing and there's some minutes to be had there but I also think now you trust even if Remy Martin does come back and cannibalize most of the minutes that Joe Yesfu has you still would have some Joe Yesfu minutes to maybe give rest or even more rest to Dewan Harris but at the very least if, if Remy Martin doesn't come back it just it does provide that more rest um it does allow for and this goes back to the rest column because you're more rested, you're gonna exert more defensive energy. Like a perfect example, Marcus Garrett, who I think was playing through some injuries his senior year as well, so I think that's a part of it. But Marcus Garrett won Naismith Defensive Player of the Year his junior season, or maybe won the other one. I don't know. There were two. Udoka won one. Marcus won the other. Whichever one Marcus won, phenomenal defensive player, best defensive individual defender in the country, and. Then his senior year happens, and he doesn't win the award. He wasn't a finalist. You know, clearly, if you were asking people, like, who are the best defenders in the country, he's on that short list. But because he had to initiate the offense so much as a senior compared to as a, a junior, when it was Devon Dotson, when it was Yudoka Azubuki, when it was Ochak Baji, it, it was Marcus Garrett as, as pretty much the guy taking up the ball and initiating the offense every time his senior year 
You don't have as much energy to exert on the defensive end. I mean, I remember, uh, I forget if it was Devontae Graham. I think both Devontae Graham and Frank Mason. Like, Frank Mason, I think, made an all-Big 12 defensive team as, like, a sophomore. Uh, Devontae Graham, I remember, as a sophomore. Like, he was taking Buddy Heald that game in Norman, and that was the talk, like, that he was this great defensive guard. By the time you get to Devontae as a senior or Frank as a senior where they're carrying the load offensively, it's no longer like, oh, this guy's this elite defender now because you just don't have as much energy to exert on and off the ball. And I think that in itself is a huge difference for KU as well. A game they played well defensively correlates with a game Joe Yesvu played more. Joe Yesvu, good on-ball defender. Joe Yesvu provides uh, some disruption. He can get steals. And it also allows Dewan Harris, one of your best theft players at getting steals, to be his maximum effort on the defensive end as well. I think there's just a, a lot of positives that you can come out of that. And I think that um, Monday was probably a good indication that the Joe Yesvu minutes, at least till Remy Martin's back, are, are here to stay. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think there's no, I I I'd be shocked to see them go significantly down. Now look, there may be games where it's like a certain amount one game, two minutes less the next game, but I don't see any significant droppage for for every reason that you just laid out. He's Adam Rivetta. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.